Welcome to a wonderful choose-your-own-adventure version of V'ger Please, A Hateful Voyage of the Delta Quadrant. Click here if you would like to know more about your host, Joseph. Uh, click over here if you want the window in the back of the limousine to roll up and be flooded with poison gas. That's how I always died in those books, man. It's like every time I got somehow gassed in the back of a limo, I think it was foreshadowing something very dark in my future. I'm Peter, by the way. And we are we are making immediate reference to probably the most uh, touching and all immersive fan creation to date for our little podcast corner of the world, Peter. And that is super fan Jack. Uh, he we've referenced him on the podcast before. He is somebody who who just uh, is as big a Star Trek fan as anybody and is willing to do in-depth scientific research into in-universe continuity questions that we have. Uh, but his talents are not confined solely to hyper-focused nerd factoids. No, no. This man is a creator, and he created the very first V'ger Please interactive experience, specifically a choose-your-own-adventure-style text game where you play as Harry Kim in the episode Worst Case Scenario doing his playthrough of Insurrection Alpha. It is a swan dive into super nerd, where the fuck did my time just go? He dropped that thing on the middle of us in the workday, and I lost easily an hour into playing through this scenario, and I didn't even like reach the end. I never even touched the holodeck wall. It got to a point where I was like... <laughs> I have to get payroll done. This is this is bad for my business right now. I have to get back to work and I cannot pick this back up because it will be another hour into the ether. And man, it do yourself a favor. Can we like link that uh, in the show notes? Yeah, I will happily do that. So the uh, I by the way, I played that so much while I was at work. I burnt my phone's battery out like I drained oh, it formatted almost for the way down too. Yeah, you can play it on mobile as well. So, uh, at least on Android. So, I've linked it everywhere that I can. Uh, it is hair called Harry's Run, and I've put it on the, our Twitter, on it on our Facebook page, in the, the trauma support group, and on and as as far as wide as I can get it. And I will put it in the show notes here, so that if you're not connected to us on social media, you can find it. But it is a uh, fully uh, fleshed out choose your own adventure game where you uh, play as Harry Kim uh, in worst case scenario. And uh, you have a lot of different options of what you can do, how to start the program, things that happen outside of it, things that happen inside of it, choices that you can make throughout that. Uh, let's just say uh, Jack is a connoisseur of everything that we also have enjoyed about Voyager and uh, makes quite a few uh, amusing references to our own work, which I had to uh, suppress my laughter in my cube as I furiously attempted to find a way to uh, survive this game, which I have not found. Jack claims there is a way to beat it. I have not yet found the string to do so, but I'm going to keep trying. We should make some t-shirts just so we can give a t-shirt away to whoever wins it first. Yeah, if somebody can actually beat this i promise a prize i can't 
I will figure it out when you know someone what? wins. <laughs> Let's, uh, nobody beat this thing, because I got a bad feeling this prize is going to be more bad slash fiction, and I think <laughs> we can so... The prize is Peter's suffering. Yeah, well, that's a prize but... that Jerry Taylor's already claimed. Jack, fantastic. Uh, could not be more honored by its creation. I think everybody that's played it has had a good time with it. Thank you for doing it. Just Everybody's fantastic. been very busy on the creative front. We had Jack's Choose Your Own Adventure. Uh, Darius, who has given us a cornucopia of dank memes, had some of his work, some of his best work, I, in my opinion, uh, stolen by what? It was like a BuzzFeed or a Screen, screen Rant? Screen Rant. It was Screen Rant. Freaking Screen Rant. uh, scooped up one of Darius's spicy hot comic memes. He did the uh, reasonable subjection uh, suggestion man gets thrown out the window version of Voyager uh, and uh, screen rant found that and put it together in one of their stupid listicles and uh, poor, poor dude uh, has his memes circulated, but gets none of the dreams that come, come with the memes. So, I, I'm sorry your meme stolen valor moment has arrived, Darius, but it just means that you've you made know, it. You've made it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Internet. Another shout out we got was from one of our fans, Noel, who's uh, got a little podcast of her own uh, that she titles uh, just a typical ADHD and kind of talks a lot about the uh, interests that she has, particularly nerd culture interests, and went through a lineup of Trek related podcasts that she listens to. We are among them. And we certainly appreciate all the nice things that she said about it. Um, and I also want to thank her for talking about the people versus Star Trek Voyager, which I did not know about. And I started listening to and it's fantastic. Yeah, I gave it a little listen. Uh, episode one, just to see what those guys are about. The Voyager podcast, man, and really just the Star Trek ones in general, I try to stay away from. I think it's too easy for other ideas to kind of get in and i don't want to fall into a thing where we start stealing other people's thing or there's accusations or whatever but i gave them a little listen we're well past where they started and uh i liked everything i heard so i think once we wrap up with our run of voyager maybe once we get a little deeper and there's even more distance in there uh i'm gonna give them a hard listen yeah it's flat out done in a I want to say a uh, more radio show style. You know, we're doing just kind of a more of a recorded conversation. They're doing a much more production. Did and you listen uh, to their first episode? Uh, no, I skipped to a couple uh, episodes that I know we enjoyed podcasting about, which is always my tactic with these yeah. things to kind of kind of get a feel for it. And yeah, I listened to their take on uh, sexy vampire casts adventures. Was it, <laughs> was it, it was in good. line with ours? Uh, it was a different, but still highly amusing take. They had a, one thing they said that I thought was really interesting. That's that uh, it seems like Harry Kim was supposed to be written for someone much physically younger than Garrett Wang. And I think that's the kind of insight I saw them having. I'm like, can't fall in line with that. Otherwise it's, it's going to start coming out of my mouth, but strong observation. Anyways, uh, it was nice hearing her name out there. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time that she put in her podcast was a good listen, and I suggest other people go out there and check it out. Let's get a link to that out there, too. So we want to conclude all of this uh, recognition with a request. Uh, we would love it if people spread the word about Vija, please. Uh, we uh, 
we would love to see more activity in terms of people leaving reviews, uh, spreading links, or doing whatever that you can do to get the word out there. Uh, you know, we we love to bring more people into the fold. We appreciate all of the creations and shout outs and everything that people do. So uh, if you are such a person that feels that you like the show enough that you're like, yes, I think other people should listen to this and join in the gleeful, uh, dark uh, fun that we have here. Please do so. Leave a review on iTunes, a review on Stitcher, uh, share it on any social media platform of your choice, whatever you feel like doing. We'd appreciate it. We would. And uh, with that, let's get the show on the road here, man. Season four, episode two, The Gift. I can't help but look at this episode through the lens of some of the stuff we talked about last week, which was how shoehorned things felt. Um, you, know, I, I The more I thought about what we talked about, the more it made so much sense to me of they didn't really figure out what they wanted to do with concluding that two-parter. And so they kind of just created an ending that they wanted and they made it work to that end because they wanted to do this switch of characters and that sort of thing. And as a consequence, I, I think I enjoyed this less than the last time I watched it. Really? Yeah. Um, however, overall, I do think that the acting ability of the two characters in which this focuses on elevates the material enough that it's overall good. Obviously, the big story here is this is Farewell to Kess, whom you and I have come to deeply appreciate. Jennifer Lean, who I, Kess, have come to love, and, and I wish I could remember the name, but way back in the beginning of season one, uh, one of the first couple episodes, we were pretty mean about some of the things we said. We touched on some of her mental illness. We got some pushback from one of the early listeners, and I want to give this nameless person an apology. Uh, you were completely right. I was completely wrong. Uh, she, I feel, knocked it out of the park for the entire three seasons that she was prominently featured in. And uh, I am very sad to see Jennifer Lean's departure from the show. I can't help but say that her time on the show was underappreciated, I think, by, by Trek fans. And that Kess as a character worked really well on Voyager, and as I look back at many of the episodes that we've enjoyed the most, it's really, she did a great job. And it's a shame that things got out of control for her, and she wasn't able to follow through on further professional success because of what happened. This being her last episode kind of sucks. Um, it It's a pretty good way to wrap up her character arc. I'm not surprised to have read that the idea behind this episode came from Brian Fuller who I mentioned last week is somebody that gets involved in the season is probably one of the more talented writers they end up with for the, for the back half of the show. And ultimately is somebody that was intended to be very involved with discovery before he got kind of trounced out. And uh, I also liked seven of nine, like what they're trying to do with her and set her up here works a lot better uh, than what we saw. I go in big picture here before we really get into the details. I liked the episode overall. I, I thought that especially in the wake of the absurdity that was Scorpion part one and, you know, Scorpion part two was just along for the action part of the ride for what the setup of one was. 
this I thought was a solid episode all around. And I think this was one of those situations where it was a very good reflection of the feminine voice in in Voyager. And you're familiar with uh, uh, how do you, the Bechdel test? Yes, I am. So that's uh, can you have two female characters who are named uh, in a movie or TV show and can they hold a conversation without it being about a man? And you have that up and down the wall in this episode, and it doesn't even really come out to the forefront. It's not like it's beating you over the head. You just step back and you're like, well, I watch all this great character development for Janeway and Kess and Seven of Nine. This was a really good episode. This is a really good example of, you know, women in Star Trek and and good sci-fi coming out of it. So, yeah, let's put that in context for a second. I guess this goes back to some of my old man uh, shakes fist at cloud uh anger that i sometimes have with like new wave trek fans particularly on twitter like this aired september 10th 1997 and easily the top three characters in this episode are in order uh seven of nine kess and captain janeway and they all have uh a very delicate interpersonal connection uh and it, it is about the things that their characters are going through and it demonstrates that, quite frankly, uh, you know, 22 years ago, we were already at a point in this franchise where women were everything that they could be, you know. And I I, I guess my, my sometimes annoyance at, at the new wave of Trek fans that have tried to sort of claim a, a stake in, in the fandom, I think uh, – uh, overemphasizing the the woke politics of today uh ignore this stuff and that's why it annoys me like what i liked about it is the same thing you liked about it we, we've talked in the past about the effective use of the feminine voice in voyager because it's the this quote-unquote chick show like it has that rep and i think that that rep has proven to be very true yeah. in the fans of our podcast in terms of like, as we see people who like the show and we are noting they're predominantly women, like, oh, okay, I get it, right? And um, this is a great use of that because I don't know if this would have been nearly as effective with male characters, you know, trying to go through the same thing. I don't think it would have worked. I think this only works because you used female characters to be able to uh, express how these uh, the relationships work. Although special shout out to Tuvok, I think he's actually well used in this as well. Uh, yes, for for a multitude of reasons that I'm looking forward to getting into. So uh, we start off with an exterior view of Voyager, a very poorly created CGI model, and man, it's it's not getting any easier to watch us. Did we ever establish, did they at any point have a physical mock-up of Voyager or has it been CGI from the jump? It's been, that, I, it's been CGI from the jump. And I want to reflect for a moment on one thing about the CGI here. Like, I actually started watching some more episodes of Enterprise, you know, the show that comes after this, just a couple years after Voyager is over. Not even a couple years, almost immediately thereafter. Boy, oh boy, the CG on that show actually is really good. Okay, it holds up. It's not perfect by today's standards, but it actually still looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that just like that couple years there going into 2000s ended up being really critical 
in the development of that technology and being able to deploy it on a TV budget or what, but what a difference uh, it, it makes like from 2001 on it's still it still holds up you know even now here in 1997 ugh. so <laughs> you can suck enterprises dick all you want i i still don't want to watch this goddamn thing <laughs> that's why we're going to yeah we'll see about that uh <laughs> but this voyager model is covered in what my wife called mold and i think that's an appropriate way of of yeah, it's, it's mold deck mold like you just inhaled and got yourself super sick it's got uh, Borg augmentations all over the outside of the hull. We never really established how they deployed all this Borg mold extra armor modifications in the, what, two hours they had before yeah. the big fight. A reminder, they managed to make system-wide, ship-wide modifications, including the deployment of Borg armor onto Voyager in two hours, with only one functional Borg drone left, by the way. I'm guessing like it was it's a- like that uh insulation you blow inside the wall and it just like super expands and they just had tubes blowing that crap all over the nacelles and saucer section and why the fuck were they putting borg armor on voyager when it was obvious that for some reason species 8472's weapons just bounce off their shields anyway it's the Borg that are super vulnerable to them, apparently. Like, yeah. s- s- uh, adding a bunch of Borg schmutz to their hull would probably be a uh, a problem. That would be a yeah. I mean, Voyager took like, Voyager took three or four direct shots. Shots at against a cube, you know, resulted in complete destruction on one hit. So, very good observation there, Joe. Yet another hole punched in the armor of Scorpion Part Two. Uh. And we get a quick rundown that Voyager is not in a good place. They're still kind of in Borg territory. uh, And most of the major ship systems are offline, including warp drive, and that they're having a hell of a time trying to get these Borg augments off so they have full control of the ship again. Before they go into detail about what's going on with the ship, they take a long panning shot to show you that the cargo bay still looks like, uh, you know, a a Borg uh, hostel. And, you know, they've got the bunk beds set up, those those trunks that you can lock to put your stuff in so some Norwegian guy doesn't steal it from you. And in one of the uh, alcoves is Seven of Nine, who is still very borged up for the most part. And uh, Janeway Tuvok and the doctor enter and start talking about her which and, and mentioning, well... You know, she's starting to become more human and we get a long, well, I'll say medical babble explanation from the doctor who always like Robert Picardo is always so good at deploying this dialogue that it never feels clunky. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. He's just really good. Yeah. Very zippy. He's very good at it. He always is good at it. Uh, But the point is, is that uh, Seven of Nine's humanness is attempting to assert itself over her Borgness. And he is using his his special Federation necromancy powers to essentially slowly deborg her. Now, I want to put the, the the Seven of Nine stuff on a platform, and I want to play a game where we compare this adventure to I think the closest prior Star Trek adventure that can be related to it, and that is with Hugh. You remember when? Of course, the Enterprise crew uh, capture a Borg drone. 
and Jordy and Data accidentally basically turn it into their dog. Yes. Fondly. It's a great episode. And it's really the only other time we have seen someone who was a Borg drone uh, be able to reestablish a personal identity. Long-term Borg drone. Right. And, you know, uh, Picard's experience, I think, is very special. And I'm putting that aside at the moment. Hugh was someone that was a drone and then became someone. And so we know that this process is possible. And in that episode, it was very TNG, right? Like he learned the, like Hugh learned the power of friendship sure. <laughs> and, and and turned into a person like it's very uh, optimistic. Uh, it's very uh, best uh, angels of our nature type of storytelling. Uh, it's super worked for TNG in and that episode, I think, is a good one. I love Admiral Necheyev in that one, by the way. Or, or the way that she references it later of like, by the way, if you ever wind up with another board drone, you can use to buy a weapon, murder all of the other Borg. You're going to fucking do it. <laughs> but uh, uh, they to compare that to what they do with Seven of Nine in this episode, where she is a long term Borg drone. And unlike you, she does not give a, a flying fuck about the power of friendship. She is a really enjoys being a Borg and is I would say almost like a haughty Borg supremacist and her experience is very different as a consequence. And I really think it works. She's like, and I mean, there's some references to other places, you know, she is a, a former drug addict. She's a former cult member. And that's the kind of persuasion that this has had over. It's a, it's a physiological need for this connection. And I think she portrays it pretty well the whole way through. Uh, you know, we're talking about Nechev and we're talking about out of the whole scope of Star Trek, there's three reformed Starfleet reformed uh, Borg incidents. And that was Hugh that's Locutus and now seven of nine. Do you think at some point somewhere in Starfleet, they're like, look, yes, we recognize that we can bring these people back, but we cannot, allow that hope or expectation to foster within the Federation because if we don't treat these guys like someone we want to eradicate and destroy, if we hold out hope that we can bring our our, our lost friends and family back and turn them back into human, we're going to lose every battle because we're going to start pulling punches and instead of eradicating these people, uh, we're going we're gonna to go soft and we're going to pay the price. I, you know, obviously I jumped the gun on you by referencing Nechev because at the time, I think at the time in the Federation that this is taking place, that's absolutely has to be their policy, right? That's Nechev says that, like, I don't give a shit. If you get the chance to do that again, you are going to do it. Like that's her demand to Picard is I don't want to hear about you getting an opportunity to wipe out the Borg again and you taking a pass on it because one of them, you know, turns out to reclaim their humanity. That's not the priority. So I think they're there, I think, uh, operationally. Uh, however, I think there's more things that happen with their development of the Borg through the rest of the show that theoretically, uh, if we if we saw a Star Trek show that happened after Voyager ended, they might start to have a very different take on how to handle the Borg. I don't want to talk any more about it. Uh, but right now, 
I, operationally in the Federation, not only do I think that that's true, I think we have that canon confirmed by what Necheyev did at the end of TNG. Because that was like end of season six that she says that. So Yeah, and yet here you have Janeway, and you know, I don't want to blow it all up again like we did for Scorpion 2, but taking just what should have been a very disposable Borg drone, no different than the dozen or so that Chakotay jettisoned into space, and all of a sudden we have someone that we want to bring on the crew. And yes, obviously the studio execs wanted a hot blonde in a tight skin suit and and this is them ramrodding that into the show. But yeah, and that's the, all that... the forced nature of it that I talked about earlier that I can't get beyond. You're right when you, you pegged that last week. Of all the excellent tag-along alien species that you could have brought onto the ship to start replenishing crewmates and, and everything that you're doing essentially with um, with Seven of Nine, and you're going to pick a fucking Borg drone to be that one special project. Not only that you're bringing on the ship that very specifically and explicitly says, I do not want this. You are forcing this on me. Stop. Like in the, again, the the overall Janeway hypocritical hall of fame. I mean, this is right up there at the top now, right off the jump. We move forward from here to a scene in sick bay after seven of nine reacts poorly to the news that she is becoming more human. And as you noted, objecting to that, that's she has to continue to have her Borg shit removed. And the doctor and Kess are working on that. And that's kind of when we get the, the intro to Kess's storyline here is that uh, she's asked to get some anesthetic for the, uh, the surgery and so she essentially uh, Jedi mind tricks the, the hypo spray into her hands. I was waiting for and, her to grab that hypo spray and just like pop a lightsaber blade out of it. Cause that was some, that was some real Qui-Gon shit there, man. It was, uh, she's, she straight up summons that shit from across the room. And it's, it's a clear use of her telekinesis at a level that we haven't seen probably since, uh, she was melting uh, Tuvok's blood and, and boiling her his brain in season two. Uh, we saw it in Warlord. It's true. We did see a bit of that unlocked in Warlord. So there was there's a hint of it there. But uh, they quickly uh, confab and scan Kess and try and figure out what's going on with her. And the, the excuse they give us is that her contact with Species 8472 has kind of like turbocharged her her telepathic centers and her abilities seem to be progressing at a much faster rate than they were before this whole thing just works for me and it is i think in any other hands i would have had a lot of arguments about it and mary sue and this and that but i mean they've really laid the groundwork for everywhere that they go with this development her meditation sessions with tuvok we know she's got like this Omega level mutant power scale that's latent in her that she's been reluctant to go into. I think that Jennifer Lean's acting and embracing this and kind of like having a a calm yet being excited about it for like this kind of like this the Zen master feel works. I think that Tuvok's skepticism, but like reluctant admission that at least in the beginning, she, you know, she is able to push these boundaries and then to get into like some really goofy science, like, you know, what's beyond the sub molecular level. 
it, it all just works really well, I think. Yeah, it's they built up to this in a way that makes it all make sense. Like if you're going to write Kess off the show, this was the exact way to do it. And then as I had alluded to, it doesn't surprise me that the guy who put that together was someone from the outside who had been watching the show. Brian Fuller, who said the power of watching previous episodes that so many directors just can't comprehend. uh, Excellent stuff. That's exactly I mean, sad, but true. Right. And because he was a fan who was attempting to break into writing when he got the opportunity to pitch what to do about Cass, he's like, well, this, this thing that makes sense would be that her telepathic abilities start to expand beyond uh, her physiology. And as a consequence, like she has to leave and they're like, Oh, that's a great idea. And it's like, well, it's a great idea because it's the one you set up. Yeah. You know, it's like the one where you actually have done things like when Gary Graham, the and cold fire uh, caretaker caretaker uh, showed up like and part of her Super Saiyan abilities had been unlocked. She achieved Super Saiyan one, you know, OK, well, she'll achieve Super Saiyan two, <laughs> you know, like and that'll be how she she leaves and saying, oh, yeah, when you had contact with this super telepathic race from another dimension it kind of like clicked something in your regulator and now you're just kind of taken off into Narnia. It makes sense. I buy it. Sure. Um, the, the drama basically passes between Kess and seven of nine from this point forward in terms of the story's focus. Uh, and it's actually summarized quite neatly by Janeway at one point when she's in, uh, in the, the hallway with Tuvok which is I've got no Coppin who wants to be more than she is. And I've got, you know, a Borg drone that wants to be less. And that's the dichotomy that they set up. You know, Kess is attempting to expand beyond her horizons and achieve whatever this next stage in her life is going to be. While seven of nine is trying to revert and go back to being a drone and making a case that she should be allowed to just choose to go back to being a drone and, essentially Janeway telling her that she doesn't have the capacity to make that choice for herself because frankly, she's an addict and she needs to be detoxed. You know, it just clicked in my head, like the whole, the crux of her, her hypocritical argument in this, I think falls back to uh, Winnie the Q when she, you know, decided, hey, if people want to will themselves into death and suicide, who am I to stay in the way of a, a sentient beings like desire to die or this or that? Like if they can clearly communicate it, then we should give it to them. And, and who are we to I judge? Like, I don't think it's hypocritical, though. Like I get what you're saying, that she's forcing this on. I, I That's where the shoehorned piece of it comes in is like, why do they randomly have this Borg drone now? Mm-hmm. It's like it's super convenient that it just so happens they wound up with this Borg drone in a way that they now feel morally responsible for her. But in terms of Janeway not allowing Seven of Nine to go back to the Borg and her reasonings for why she doesn't allow it, that makes sense. Like, I don't think that's hypocritical of her. What her rationale is – I am not going to give you that choice because I don't think you are capable of understanding that choice. Whereas Winnie the Q was capable, perfectly capable of understanding that choice, exhaustively capable of understanding that choice and wanted to do it anyway. And that's where Janeway's like, listen, if you want to do this, I can't, you know, I can't stand in your way because I know you understand the choice you're making. 
Mm. Whereas she specifically draws a line with seven of nine to say, you don't really know the choice you're making there. So I'm until you're ready to make that choice, I'm going to be making it for you. Yeah, I suppose the the mommy knows best line does get dropped pretty clearly. So, so I'll concede that. Sure. So the the ongoing drama with seven of nine is that they have to rapidly deborg her as her human physiology asserts itself, you know, giving her a new eye, uh, taking off pieces of her, her basically her armor plating, you know, she slowly some starts some stuff too. Cause they're talking about like some piece on her head has like over 30,000 micro attachments. So rather than remove the armor, they're going to like just remove a chunk of her skull. And she's right. looking gruesome through this too. Like if you thought she looked on, you know, the, the, the corpse Borg, which is, uh, you know, our post first contact Borg and next gen, the Borg were just white cream makeup, which I thought looked cool. In in first contact, they start looking like zombies with diesel parts jammed into them. Uh, as they start to deborg her, the human parts come out more. There's more flesh, but it's diseased, gross looking flesh. It it's not a pretty sight, and especially when they take that optical sensor off her face, and she's just got like this eye hole with with a connection socket. It bugged my wife out, and I think it was a. It was a pretty impressive feat, I think, for a new way to make the Borg look even grosser. The kind of like half human version of her is, I think, like, I like the way they did the makeup. Is that like she has like more color in her skin as the episode goes on. Yeah. I liked it. Like it it, it tried. They tried to show the slow like reassertion of her humanness in the makeup. I thought that was clever. It was also worth pointing out that at one point she starts to uh, seven of nine starts to go into like a, a, a shock and and have like a stroke and uh, Cass is able to pinpoint the tiny little uh, like Borg implant in her brain that's doing it and basically like mind laser it out. She does like she does. She she uses mind bullets. That's telekinesis, Kyle. She does uh, a scene out of Justice League. There's a Justice League uh, comic where they use Superman's super sight and Batman's knowledge of the brain while the flash is vibrating so they can reach in there and like touch someone's brain and, and Labot. Some craziness, some crazy comic stuff. Yet here's Kess pulling it out of her back pocket. And again, it just works. I th- they set the table for this kind of stuff perfectly. And I love not only Tuvok's reaction, who's standing there, but the doctor and we've talked before the uh, Kess and the doctor are this package deal and to see her start leapfrogging him in terms of medical ability, I thought was really cool. And I think that Picardo played it off great. He did. He was good in this episode and his interactions uh, with with everyone. I thought he, he was kind of the comic relief too. You know, he gets real proud of the eye he made for. Mm-hmm. for it was a nice eye. It was a great looking eye. And Janeway's like, that's nice. Can I, 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 I need to move on. <laughs> like, I got, uh, I can't, I can't deal with you right now. Kess continues to explore her uh, psychic abilities with Tuvok in a meditation scene. And that scene I thought was a real nice bookend to the last time they had a meditation scene together. That was really notable. I call the scene Tuvok really wants to get his head cooked again. Yeah. So you're like sitting there like nobody 
don't do it don't get your blood boiled uh, stevie's like oh no <laughs> like it's gonna happen again he's she's she's doing shit with fire because it's gonna be terrible it was such a good fake out and what we're referencing is uh cold fire and that's where Kess came into contact with the the evil alternative Ocampo who were under the rule of uh, Caretaker 2 and getting supercharged off of that. She starts kind of psychoflexing, and we got that awesome cutaway to Tuvok's head being microwaved while his temples are like pulsating and green blood is everywhere. So you're in the same dark room. He's got his little prayer table out. It looks like, uh, as my wife said, they're sitting there playing a Ouija board or something <laughs> in the dark. And you're like, man, yeah. Tuvok is about to get fucked up again because they're really laying out this breadcrumb trail that Cass has some some major juice now and she's not going to be able to control it. He's got this uh, I Dream a Genie lamp out on the table with a fire. She's making the flame increase and decrease. And the whole time you're just waiting for it to get out of control and just fire starter his whole room. But she pulls through this thing tight and she gets to a point where she says, I can see the molecules of the flame. I can see deeper. And then they treat us to some 90s crappy blur effects, uh, which really impressed Tuvok. Yeah, the the point being is that Kess's ability is not only reached the point where she can affect things on beyond a subatomic level, which, of course, goes as kind of beyond science, uh, is also she's totally in command. Like when we saw this before. She was clearly not totally in command and was struggling with, like, controlling the power. This time, the way Jennifer Lean plays it off is that she is 100% locked in on controlling it. And so there's never an indication shit's going to go bad. And it doesn't. Which I thought was cool. And at the same time, Seven of Nine has been drafted by Janeway to try and help uh, resolve voyagers ongoing engine problems of having all of the board schmutz you know still kind of like stuck on it and in the process of doing so trying to convince her to like give being human a chance they get some real close-ups on seven and nine's faces in these conversations at which point you come to realize that uh long-term borg have excellent dental care there is not a single speck of black or gray or goop on her teeth anywhere. And uh, you can say what you want about the Borg, but they know their way around a toothbrush. I would have expected all their teeth to be like meth hillbilly rotted out, but she's got a mighty fine set there. They're almost as nice as uh, Bolanas, who, you know, everything we saw about the Klingons prior said that they have like. She got the human teeth. Yeah. <laughs> she got the human teeth, which was good. Uh, there's a little bit of ramrod. I, I don't know. I, they're not. I'd say if there's a falling, uh, a faltering on the episode, it's that. You know, what, what, what are they really trying to do with seven of nine? They were very quick to exploit the Borg in the past. You know, if Janeway and Chakotay had decided a side conversation saying, look, you know, we might be able to mine information or use her as kind of a weapon. Janeway's laid out this roadmap of, uh, compassion and motherly instincts almost uh, as to her reasons for wanting to go down this. I think the decision to push her out into the Jeffrey's tubes and get her to start interacting with the crew, despite her, her being in the midst of the throes of like 
detoxing from this drug addiction to the Borg where, I mean, she slaps Janeway around a few times after Janeway brings out uh, her her history. They find out that her name was what? Annika. Annika Hansen. Hansen. And she had been potentially one of the first cases of uh, human assimilation by the Borg. So, you know, what are the odds that that's who gets to be her, that she just happened to be on that cube. But uh, 18 some years ago, her parents had flown off towards the Delta Quadrant as kind of these rejectionists that wanted to go out and see the the Delta Quadrant. And I thought that was kind of a lonely story. Like, you got your wife, so, you know, your companionship's good. But then you got your child daughter and you're just going to fly off into the Delta Quadrant and guarantee she's never going to have any human contact for the rest of her life. Like, shitty parents of the year award there. Well, 24th century is not bred responsible parenting, and I think we can establish that pretty firmly. I, you know, They're trying to set things up with explaining who she is and kind of build a character for her. I think the least interesting thing about Seven of Nine is her quote-unquote human life. And when they try and drag that out, I think the far more interesting thing about her is just, the, you know, her being the flip side of, of Hugh. And instead of being kind of a, a simpleton that turns that that is turned by the power of friendship, she's somebody that is has been so used to being Borg that she actually tries to go back to it. And later on, even as that, you know, plot line fades away and she becomes more comfortable being human, she still very much does things the way Borg do things and doesn't ever kind of let that go. And to that end, she ends up in the Jeffries tubes working on all of the Borg schmutz with Harry Kim, who his role in this episode is to try and have small talk with Seven of Nine. That's fine. It's kind of funny. Uh, but she spots an opportunity to use a communications device to contact the collective and attempts to do so. And uh, she's actually only thwarted by two things one that somehow some way uh starfleet security personnel are so incompetent that merely being hit in the shoulder by a oh my God. tossed harry kim apparently renders you completely incapable knock the of- fuck out dude i that was like my big focus for this episode i get it she's still got borg implants she's probably pretty strong harry's not good at taking punches she catches him off guards i get it she knocked Harry out. But this fucking security guard, you've got a Borg drone who is being like Fido'd, right? And set out into your ship to start fixing things. You should have like a certain degree as a Starfleet security officer of not trusting the situation at all. And this dude like posts up while he's supposed to be guarding her from being from doing exactly this. And he puts his back to her and like, acts like he's guarding the room from some unknown foe out in the hallway somewhere else. So yeah, she blasts Harry across a jaw and Jerry goes, I'm sorry, Harry goes flying. Like you said, like kind of clips this guy's shoulder and down he goes. As if my opinion of Chakot of, uh, of Tuvok could not get any worse, man, just whether it's him or these terrible ass securities, I want to see the fight between the Ferengi and the security guys from false prophets. Because if this is what it takes to put these guys down, man, like they could have just sneezed down one of these dudes and knocked them over. Yeah, like what hope do you have against the real threats in the Delta Quadrant when you get 
jabronied by a couple non-combatant Ferengi and Harry Kim's shoulder. I mean, like truly the most deadly weapon on the vessel. Forget space pipes, but being shoulder checked by by uh, Harry Kim. You know, Harry they ever... Flemmy with you is is yeah. what takes you down. Do they ever? show smoldering catcher like failing a security opportunity because he gets a little bit of playtime later in the episode i was gonna point that out he actually like uh, uh, smoldering catcher guy is no jabroni in this episode like or ever he, he gets his gat out when he's gotta keep an eye on seven of nine gun gun forward eyes locked on like he does he does not he does not uh gonna allow himself to get done like uh this this rando in the in the hallway let's book let's dog ear this because i want to start watching from now on and see at any point does he ever shit the bed because i think he's got a pretty good record so far he does he is ensign alaya has a a track record of competence yeah Uh, maybe that's part of his uh his contract is like yeah i don't need a lot of speaking lines but don't make me a punk i ain't gonna be no bitch this is the most he ever talks, by the way, that the lines that he has on the com. Those are the most lines he has in a single episode ever. Well, he spent them well. He did. He did. He we he got uh, some serious background, solo background action where he was a f- the most effective security officer we've seen on the ship in probably weeks. So, so good job, buddy. <laughs> Harry gets tossed like a DJ Jazzy Jeff by Uncle Phil into this. <laughs> crap security guard and seven to nine gets to hacking the subspace communication she's going to put out a distress beacon to pull all of the board cubes directly up voyager's ass so she can get back into the collective meanwhile up in tuvok's quarters kessa's spider senses start going off and she's like oh shit i detected disturbance in the force i see the borg drone playing games down there I'm going to send like a subspace ripple along the wall that's about to wharf her. And by wharf, I mean have an electrical explosion come up at a console and shock her ass down to the ground. And she does it. And now people start getting freaked out because her shit's starting to actually damage the ship. And yeah, she's doing some great stuff, but maybe this is getting past the point of comfort for some of these guys. Yeah, uh, the conversation that Tuvok has with with Janeway about it is, you know, the bad news is that while that worked, what she did and how she uses her powers is destabilizing the molecular structure of the ship. So there's a real negative consequence to the fact that her powers obviously warp matter because she's she's toying with things that beyond a subatomic level. And that's going to be a problem because they're on a you know, a fucking spaceship where if you mess with that, then suddenly stuff gets explosively decompressed as we will see later. And you can't have that. We've talked about what's the right way to use Tuvok. Uh, There's only so many times you can put him in the real talk. Like, you know, my emotions are out and I'm having an an outburst. Uh, He's very quickly establishing. And I don't know if it's Tim Russ or the writer's room or what, but the right way to use Tuvok is to put him kind of like the tip of the spear in and dealing with an oh shit situation where he can throw a little bit of a sass uh, in into the context of the conversation and it makes him engaging. It keeps him as a position of authority. I don't want to say it humanizes him, but it makes him a little bit more interesting. And 
almost watching the way he reacts to this wild shit going on around him can at times be more interesting than than what they're actually showing on the screen. All props to Tim Russ being such a, a nerd about playing a Vulcan that when he's given the opportunity to be interesting in that subtle way that he does it. So I don't think that's direction. I really think that's more him, you know, mm-hmm. like he he's really dialed into how to play this character. And when he gets the opportunity to play in the margins like this. Yeah. You kind of get you kind of get the 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 sensation that you're talking about. And I agree. It's really good in this episode. And I think that's really that's Tim Russ's talent in portraying Tuvok. Um, the. The fate of Seven of Nine is that she is now in the brig being guarded by the single most effective security officer on the ship, uh, smoldering catcher guy. And Janeway has a series of of interactions with her over two scenes where essentially she is trying to convince her to give being human a chance and break through her uh, preconceptions about being an individual. And the real difference between how he was handled and how this is handled starts to really break through here as they touch upon that intoxicating power of certainty and self-assurance comes as a consequence of being part of the multi-billion, you know, person collective that being separated from that after being part of that for so long has an effect on you that is damaging to your psyche. Uh, that, you know, the the cooperative drones in uh in the uh unity episode right like they also suffered the pitfalls of not having that right like the whole point of that episode was that these guys who were borg a lot less and were all from the alpha quadrant and all had reason to cooperate with each other couldn't find a way to do it without basically kickstarting their co- their collective again Right. It's that drug addict angle again, and I think it works so well. And I think ever since we kind of started fleshing out into that, it really puts the Borg in a whole different light for me. And it's it's a good light. It's an interesting light that, you know, there there is this pleasure and this euphoria and this bigger sense of purpose. And yeah, moving away from it is is like going through withdrawal. It also puts in the context that the Borg aren't zombies like all of the Borg are invested into this and separating any of them from it in this fashion is going to have this effect where their personalities will reassert themselves quickly in the absence of it. It's just that they are so used to not having one that it becomes alien and strange to them, you know, Mm -hmm. and we've seen, you know, basically the blank slate version of this with Hugh. And we've seen the temporary, it was horrifying because obviously my experiences as a individual are far more prevalent to me experience that Picard had of being temporarily assimilated. And this is, you know, a third way of someone who is a lifer who finally gets out of jail and doesn't know how to deal with the real world institutionalized you know, institutionalized into being borg and 
Jerry Ryan's strength in portraying that that line is, you know, I'm a big fan of how she plays this character, and I feel like, you know, she's now getting an opportunity to to explore that space, and I like that they set her up from the beginning of like her assertion of her individuality will not always be something that is gonna work on the ship, right? Like she's going to want to do things the way she wants to do them. And that's always not always going to be a positive thing when she asserts her personality. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll see uh, how that develops. I, I'm, I'm wondering how much of this is us reading between the lines and how much of it was intended stuff in the writer's room. I think, I think a fair amount of, I mean, there's some pretty nail on the head stuff that she discusses while she's having these temper tantrums with uh, Janeway in the brig. So, uh, again, we can say maybe Brian Fuller, maybe, maybe other elements, but, uh, for as much damage as I think they just did with species eight, four, seven, two, whatever, and blowing up 15 cubes is kind of redeeming it a little bit. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. So the cast storyline starts to reach its apex, uh, as she has a, long overdue scene with Neelix. Neelix, man, when's the last time we really saw him? Like seeing him on the screen was almost a shock. Like I, I, he was barely any scorpion stuff at all. Was he? Yeah, he was not used very much going back several episodes. Now I'm going to take a look to see the last time we had a, I think rise. Yeah. Cause after that was favorite son. After that was before and after. He was Real a chump in worst case scenario. Yeah, I would say. Well, I would say the last time he was prominent was Rise, and that was that was officially eight episodes prior. So yeah, it's, man, it's been a second. And then the last time we saw these two characters specifically, which came in as a package deal, was Warlord. So it has been a long fucking time. I would say exactly what you said. Well overdue. Um. At this point, they're well past the need to establish, you know, are we dating? Are we not dating? I think they're pretty firmly confirming that this has been a a separation. They don't get into if there had been more since Warlord, uh, but they touch on some nice um, points on on the scale where it's like, hey, you know, the last time we had this super rare wine was when we first came on. you know, our focus was on exploration. He says, you know, I see now that I was holding you back before. She says, I could have never gotten to where I was without you. I thought that was a pretty touching exchange. It was. It was one that they needed to do like four episodes ago. But, you know, at least they're doing it now. And it was solid. He starts asking more and more kind of questions about what she's experiencing, how it feels. And as she starts describing these changes that she's going through and, you know, he's kind of narrating again, her, 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 her story arc, right? Which is what happens when a compa don't stop? What happens when they live uh, away from the caretaker? What happens when they press their boundaries? She had always believed that she had this destiny out in the stars and that Ocampa could achieve more. As she starts fleshing this out, she starts kind of phasing in and out of uh, in and out of existence. 
like taking on this ghostly form and the ship does not do well as she she embarks on this. The hull starts flexing uh, with admittedly better graphics than Twisted, which is the last time we really saw this. We're getting these weird ripples. Bridge gets alerted to it and they're like, what the fuck? And Janeway goes down with Tuvok. Eh, I don't know if Tuvok goes down, but the writing's on the wall. They know what's going to happen here. The the way to, I guess, to describe Kess's evolution is that she's becoming like almost incorporeal. Uh, like her her person is becoming incorporeal as well. It's a, you know, it's a bargain effect. It doesn't look great, but it, it, it does the job, which is that it is making the urgency of her need to get off the ship real and immediate. Where did the scene with her having a conversation with Janeway fit in? It was prior to this, right? No, it was after. That's the last scene she has. Like, the last scene she has is Janeway comes in. They start talking about how, like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm going incorporeal. I probably just need to get off the ship. And then literally she goes into terminal velocity on that. And then that's the end of the episode. Uh, And then they close with what happens with Seven of Nine. But to kind of wrap up the discussion of Kess. Um, what happens is that Janeway comes in, they have their final scene together where they talk a little bit about, you know, what's happening to her, you know, that, that she's part of the family that they're going to help her. And she tries to put her at Janeway. needs to be like, no, whatever's happening to me is happening. And I just need to get off the ship because obviously at this point, I'm a threat to all of you. Uh, you know, this is having a violent reaction on the ship. And um, they eventually just have to get her to a shuttle. Because she starts to I completely destabilize. Thought it was a great scene for a couple different reasons. I thought it was great acting out of both Kess and uh, and Janeway. You know, Kate Mulgrew and Jennifer Lean. I think that you know my first complaint was going to be like, how many times has there been some sort of like goofy shit where someone's like, I just need to go and be free, and then you know it's very clear that there's an alien influencer or something wrong, and Janeway calls it out. And she's like. What if what you're going through is just a figment of your imagination that this is something bad? You're just caught up in the moment and you leaving your home is going to turn out to be disastrous for you. And Janeway calling that out specifically felt really good that the show kind of acknowledges its own plot devices from the past. And what if this is one of those? And I think that uh, Kess does a good job of explaining that away and just saying look you know i'm i i have my control my faculties there's no alien influencer and you know at the end it's my decision would you tell me no and deny me that and janeway says no but you know would i plead with you and argue with you and beg with you yes for as long as it takes and i i really like that exchange yeah the i read that that was difficult for kate mulger to do because she really liked working with jennifer lane didn't like that she was being put off the show and yeah, I think that that came across well. I like Stevie was watching this one with me, and she uh, she actually kind of got near tears as it mm-hmm. ended. Like it's a very effective emotionally, uh, and they 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 serve Kess's end well. Uh, we get one final experience with her and Tuvok together, where Tuvok basically mind melds enough control into Kess that she manages to get onto the shuttlecraft and away from the ship without creating a problem for everybody. 
and which I thought was was good, like her him kind of like charging in with like, all right, I'm going to mind meld. I'm going to give you everything I got, girl. All right. Good luck. Godspeed. And um, ultimately, she gets onto the shuttle. She gets away. She starts to to completely go Super Saiyan. And that is when she decides to go ahead and give Voyager a bit of a shove. And (laughs) poor Tom's only dialogue in the episode is basically (laughs) remarking that all of a sudden they are at ludicrous speed. And uh, he says everything except for trans warp and or warp 10. They go so fast. It's an impossible speed. And the, the end result is that basically with her super Saiyan blast, her, her final Kamiyamiya, uh, she wishes Voyager away nearly 10,000 light years closer to home and completely clear of, of what they understood to be Borg space, which is a big fucking deal. Uh, it's essentially 10 years closer to home and, that's a pretty big gift from from Kess. Like, hey, I'm going to push you as far as I can push you. And good luck. And I am OK with every last drop. This is. This is the promise of Voyager for once paying off that all of the goofy trials and tribulations and, and Kess plots and this and that and time investment. Paying off for the crew and sure in this case it's a magic wish to knock them whatever but it's you know previous actions doing something to lend itself towards the overall mission which is to return home uh they laid like said the groundwork for her to have this kind of uh an ascension into uh you know godhood already on the table and and flinging it certainly you know within q's capability and all these other powerful beings caretaker and whatever else to move people around so sure uh great way to end the episode my biggest complaint about this episode though hands down is that for as intertwined as kess and the doctor were there is no sort of final scene between them and i think it is a damn shame i know we got one more romp with kess to go and i i hope there's something to be said between the two of them and her future interactions. Well, they did have a bit of a last scene. It wasn't a farewell, but remember she, she's being diagnosed for all of her issues and the doctor comes over and says, Hey, why don't you go relax? And she's like, no, I've missed you. I want to spend time with you trying to figure out what's going on. And then, you know, they, they share that, that moment together. Like that is their farewell, you know, like that. It's still, I mean, it's not the big one she gets with Janeway, but you really can only do one of those, you know? I would have rather, you know, I just sat there and talked about all the the Bechdel scale and everything else. For, he would still just be a toaster if it wasn't for her. He owes her his life numerous times over. I I could have gone for something a little bit more. I think you're right, it would have came at the sacrifice of the scene with Janeway, but it's still... It left me wanting, and like I said, I know we got one more Kess episode in the pipe down the road, and I hope they cross paths and there is there is something there for us. We wrap with Seven of Nine. So, ultimately, you know, 
Janeway confronted Seven of Nine with her human identity and with increasing, like, insistence that she needs to give being human a chance. And Seven of Nine's acceptance of that begins haughtingly. And then finally, kind of, she collapses emotionally in the insecurity and uh, that she's feeling about being alone. There's a really effective moment when, you know, she's going to go into uh, Seven of Nine's uh, brig cell and Janeway's or and Seven of Nine says, I'll kill you in a way that is very like wounded animal. And and Janeway's like, I really don't think you're going to. Meanwhile, Smolder and Ketchup guys in the back with his gat out. Like, I'll zap you, dumbass. I'll, I'll fucking <laughs> shoot. That's fine. I'll shoot me a Borg today. Seems legit. Yeah, I'm so, not like these punk Starfleet security officers that Maki don't fuck around. I got I got a phaser in one hand, and that don't work. I got a space pipe in the other. I knew I I knew Lon Suter. He taught me things. I got a catcher glove, and you're not gonna like where it's gonna go. But uh, ultimately, her her appeals to her humanity are are successful, and we last see Seven of Nine. Uh, shall we say? posed in the cargo bay for the camera uh in the iconic cat suit uh with uh jerry ryan now at full jerry ryan levels they're like uh oh look the other blonde's gone i got in her things and discover this whole treasure trove of new jumpsuits skin tight jumpsuits i wasn't feeling the velvet ones but this uh tinfoil one i think will accentuate my curves well yeah and like you know, she she goes from messed up Borg drone looking to, you know, Jerry Ryan. Supermodel. Yeah, supermodel Jerry Ryan. And dude, even, yeah, and especially, um, oh my God, I went blinking on his name, uh, producer for uh, DS9. Ron Moore. DS- yeah, Ron, Ron Moore, Moore is like this shit, yeah. And, and I can't blame him. You know, why can't she look like a fucking mess? Why does she a supermodel with some doodad super glued to her face? Like, and of course, it's it's the politics. And they say as much that, you know, when they showed what was supposed to be the new sexy time to the Paramount Studios that she was going to be borged up for three episodes. They were not happy about it at all. And they're like, no, you know, we need to show this transformation. But, you know, here's the end product. This this is what we're saying goodbye to Jennifer Lean for. Uh, and despite whatever Jerry Ryan's going to be able to do to exceed expectations, this point blank is what Voyager has resorted to. And it is super hot blonde in super tight cat suit in green neon light surrounded by smoke like it's a strip club. Uh, I am returned to my feelings that this is Voyager turning on itself and undoing a lot of hard work that they've done. Uh, and I mean, the guy parts of me enjoy it, but the, the star Trek parts of me are like, man, really? Come on. We've had the opportunity to reminisce a bit about the scumminess nature of them doing this, that it's just not very star Trek of them to ditch a developed character so that they can trot out sex appeal. We, we talked about that in our last uh, live stream, not, not the season three rip, which we have not yet recorded, but will have happened by the time people listen to this. Uh, but the, the mess hall we did before that. And 
you know, I, I said then I'll say now that Jerry Ryan ends up perhaps on accident being a fantastic addition to the show as an actor and that her character ends up being one of the better ones that we get to have because of that. Uh, but the sacrificing Kess, like, I don't know how much of a net addition it ends up being. I think the show does get better from this point forward. I think that has more to do with better writing talent in place from this point forward. Brian Fuller being the big reason as to why. And uh, not so much necessarily the Kess 709 switch. I think that ends up being kind of a wash by the end. I think that I, I think I can at least say that like we trade good for good. Uh, if the show feels like it's better in its second half, it's not because of that. It's because of better writing overall. Well, we'll see. Uh, and, and, and I'll judge that it comes down. Season three left a very good taste in my mouth. And uh, I think we can't help but count this uh, this moment of her there, as you said, posed in the stripper outfit as as a milestone for the I mean, show. His, for... Her her ass just jutted out just just in maximum sexy pose, too. It was. Yeah. How long too. was she waiting in that cargo bay for them to just happen upon her? <laughs> oh, yeah. So unfortunately, uh, Peter got sucked into a. Uh, time space butthole and has departed from us but in his absence i will i will for the first time read off the uh the episode to to be seen next and that is season four episode three day of honor Uh, the klingon holiday known as the day of honor comes and balana decides to embrace her klingon heritage and participate in a series of ritual tests so because that's gonna be the uh the first big Balana episode we've had in quite some time. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. It's a, it's a picture of, of two people in space suits. I'm going to uh, take a random stab that the other person is Tom Paris. So, uh, we might be in for hot and cold and maybe chemistry. So, uh, until next time, thank you for listening to, uh, VG, please, a hateful voyage to the Delta quadrant. And, uh, and Peter would like you to know he was actually sucked off into a picture of Jerry Ryan in that in that cat suit. It's just that strut. Her ass just had that gravitational pull. And he promises he'll be back for, for next week. We'll see you then. Peace. <laughs>